This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today, Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell is the author of Tipping Point, Blink, Outliers, What the Dog Saw, David and Goliath, Talking to Strangers, and The Bomber Mafia. He is also the host of the Revisionist History Podcast and an all-around great and thoughtful guy. So now, without further ado, Malcolm Gladwell. You might see that I collaborate with Ironclad on a lot of different projects. In fact, I have worked with them on my book trailers, this podcast, as well as a few other exciting endeavors that are currently in development. Ironclad teams up with some of the biggest brands in the world to create dynamic films, series, podcasts, and ad campaigns. If you are a brand or individual looking to elevate your content or start a podcast, don't hesitate to reach out through their website. This is ironclad.com and make sure you follow them on all major platforms at this is ironclad. Hey, Malcolm, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It, uh, it really means the world to me. Um, so, so I sincerely appreciate it. Not at all. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and is this, uh, is this Pushkin World Headquarters that you're in right now, or are you, uh, are you at is, home? Well, I live in, um, uh, a bunch of us work out of Hudson, New York. So I'm in the Hudson, New York offices. Okay. Um, so, but the rest, everyone else is in the city. Um, but we're the, uh, we're the we're the exiles. Got it. Out in the country. Got Where it. are you? No, I love it. So I'm in Park City, Utah. So I oh, okay. finished right. up uh, military time in San Diego uh, uh-huh. in the SEAL teams out there, and then we wanted to make a physical and psychological break with the military. And uh, I knew I was gonna gonna write because that's what I wanted to do since I was a little kid. My mom was a librarian, grew up surrounded by books and a love of reading. And so I prepared myself my whole life for that really next step and that transition out of the military. So we decided uh-huh. to uh, raise our kids in a ski town. So we packed up and moved up to nice. Park City, Utah. So so here we are. I know it, w- I know it well, I've been there many times. Oh, nice. For, uh, do you ski? No, I go there. This conference is there, but it, mm. most memorably, I went there because there was a time when um, a bunch of athletes run. I'm a runner, mm. and you know, the, lots of runners train up there. Oh yeah. And um, I remember once I went to do a to interview um, uh, Alberto Salazar, who was then coaching three of the greatest distance runners in the world. They're all in Park City, hey. and it was like you could drive around and you could see, you know, Mo Farah, and you know. Gil and Rump and these kind of legends just kind of cruising along. I thought it was kind of cool. Yeah, we have the altitude, a lot of trails, so you don't have to really run yeah. on the road unless you uh, really want to. So it's a uh, it's a great it's a great spot. Of course, the Utah Olympic Training Center, Utah Olympic Park up here for the for the kids. That's mostly skiing and snowboarding and things things like yeah. that. But that was the one thing we noticed. My wife and I we got out of the car and we we thought we were in pretty good shape coming from San Diego and the SEAL teams and the beach and all mm-hmm. that stuff. And we stepped out of the car in the Smith's grocery store parking lot and looked around and we're, we we looked at each other and said, Oh my goodness, we need to get into the gym. 
gym because people up here are <laughs> insane about their fitness. It is yeah, crazy. It. And then uh, they don't change. They don't go home and like shower after the gym. They go all day. They're in the workout clothes, you know, that, making sure that everyone yeah, knows that, imagine. you know how that, yeah. <laughs> I'd be a lot healthier if I lived there. Oh, I don't know. Fort I need City. to get back into it. I'm doing a lot more writing lately than I've been doing working out. So, um, which is one of the things I want to talk to you about actually and find it, but I'll, I'll get there. Um, but uh, I know your, your, your books are on a lot of reading lists, but uh, I don't know if you know that your books are on the Naval Special Warfare SEAL Team professional reading list because I put it together uh, as I was leaving oh, the wow. SEAL teams. They asked me, they knew I was a reader and interested in yeah. history and all that. So they asked me to put, uh, put a reading list together for a professional development. So uh, at that point, you had uh, f- uh, four books out. So those four books were under the uh-huh. leadership section. That's where I, I put them under, under there. But, uh, but yeah, so you're on the, the Naval Special Warfare professional reading list. Not sure if it ever went anywhere because I sent it and then sent, left the military, essentially. So not, not yeah. sure what happened to it. But uh, uh, and we also have a few things in common. So we are both have a love of the Dick Cavett show. And okay. I love I, I could spend um, days just looking at those old episodes and because uh, you didn't amazing. have a TV growing up. I know that. Um, yeah. So where did you discover the Dick Cavett show? I mean, like online, you yeah. know, in the last 10 years. I yeah. mean, I knew vaguely who he was, but I would never have grown up in Canada without a TV. I would never have watched any Dick Cavett. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would have read about him, I guess. But um, yeah. no, I just realized, you know, it's this incredibly wonderful um, repository of American cultural history. And the amazing thing is, you know, it's that it, it's that era in television when the interviews are 45 minutes long. Yeah. So it's like podcasts, you know, it's it funny. Is. Podcast is a circling back to mm-hmm. a, a role that television used to play, yeah. which was you sit and get comfortable with somebody and you have a real conversation. Yeah. And then TV, like now it's like, you know, you'll be watching late night and you're three minutes into someone who you want to hear for 40 minutes and then it's over. Yep. It's like, why? Yep. <laughs> Come back. I, exactly. <laughs> it's much more controlled. And I noticed that too. And I made the correlation to podcasts uh, as well because it's long form conversation, uh, very out of control. I don't think uh, it would come back yeah. to that today with publicists and managers yeah. and everybody wanting to control what these celebrities say on stage. They want them to get on, get introduced, uh, talk about their project and maybe Maybe tell one story, uh, anecdote something, and then off. And that's what you get. You get three, maybe a couple three-minute segments, four-minute segments maybe. But I mean, Dick Cavett show, you're, I mean, and some of these are uncomfortable. As you know, you've covered a few on your mm-hmm. podcast on Revisionist History. But even just sitting down, like I love um, I love movies and storytelling and, and the interviews with like Charles Bronson. Those are awkward. Those are tough <laughs> interviews. What he's talking to some yeah. serious tough guys that served in World War II that are now, you know, at the height of their stardom, and it's 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 interesting, especially in that time frame, what they felt comfortable yeah. talking about uh, those those celebrities without fear of backlash, I guess, or maybe not caring it's, about any. It's, it's it's amazing. And yeah, weirdly, you know, that's a time when celebrity culture is different back then, but in some ways, you could argue it's more powerful. I mean, a movie star, that was an era of movie stars where, you know, now the movie stars of today don't really, are not really on the same plane as those of the, and similarly with rock stars. I mean, that was an era when Paul Simon goes on to Cavett in 19, whatever it was, 73 or 74. He's a rock star. I mean, today there's only a handful of people who fit that category. Back then there were like 10, 15, 20 people who were, you know, walked down the street 
and you know people would swoon. And he, you're right. Though back in those days, I know I think it was probably connected. When you had people, stars were allowed to be them to be their charismatic selves yeah. on in mass media, and that that sustained their stardom. Mm. Um, and when you don't allow, when all I see of it's really hard for me to kind of fall in love with you know pick some thirty-five-year-old yeah. actor or actress if all I'm ever seeing of them is a controlled three-minute clip yeah. on morning television. Right? right. No, it certainly is, and I love uh, Truman Capote on there. I mean, multiple times. I think he's he's going on there, right, telling yeah, outrageous, yeah, right. outrageous <laughs> yeah. stories on there. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock is on there. Salvador Dali, Marlon Brando, Muhammad Ali. I just did a quick uh, Kirk Douglas. His were fascinating. Lee Marvin, love that he he talks about his time in the military in World War II. I mean, it is yeah. it's insane. It's the it's everyone went on that show, uh, and you're right. It is was Lee Marvin as legit a uh, tough guy in real life as he was in the movies? I think even more so. Uh, especially if you yeah. just look at, uh, I don't know about outside the military, but World War II and uh, certainly. Um, and But they didn't, they, t they talked about it every now and again, but mostly on Dick Cavett. I don't know yeah. if there are any other places I've read a couple of things, but I mean, in person, on TV, that sort of a thing. And it, and it was live. I don't know how, the, if they had a 15 second thing back then or a 20 second thing. I think it was all recorded live, I think. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. I yeah. mean, absolutely fascinating. Do you have a favorite uh, guest or episode? I think it probably was those Paul Simon episodes. Yeah. There's one where he's, which we used in our, we did a little audio book with Paul Simon called Miracle and Wonder. And we used a clip of one where he's, um, uh, he is halfway through the song. God, which one was it? Um, one of his most famous songs. He's written half of it and he can't figure out how to finish the song. Okay. So he goes on. Oh, it's, um, uh, Oh my God, it's, 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 it's anyway. It's, 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 so he goes and he sings the first basically three lines and then he stops and says, um, <laughs> I don't know what to do next. What oh, do you wow. think I should do? And then, he, and then he plays like a couple of versions and ideas about how to, um, about how to fix it. It's really, it's like a kind of magical moment because he's giving, he's, he's, he has the courage to take you inside yeah. his creative process. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it's really I've, I just, I can't get and Cavett's kind of patience. Cavett has no idea where it's going, uh, and he's fine with that. Yeah. And that's what makes it so, um, uh, so 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 magic. Oh yeah, it's um I, that song that begins. I met my old lover on the street last night. Still okay. crazy after all these years, yeah. and he's written. It seems so sad. She seems so glad to see me. I just smile, and I and then he goes, and I can't go. To, I don't know what happens next. <laughs> And then they try and, and then because we know looking at listening to that, you know, we know if you know Paul Simon, how the story ends yeah. and we're getting this little glimpse of him when, when he was still figuring that out. It's yeah. fantastic. Oh yeah. That is amazing. Still crazy. It's still crazy after all these years. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of those interviews aren't, and uh Cavett is so quick. I mean, he is so sharp. Uh, that's another thing that stands out to me. It's uh, you know, you know that I've done these bootleg videos with him. No. If you go on YouTube, no one has watched them. We did two of them with, he's got a, we share a friend called Dave Hill as a comedian and we did two, I think they're hilarious, but I'm biased. We shot them in my, in my living room and we just, and you know, Dave just called up Dick and said, we're doing this nutty thing. We want you to join us. Come. So he like gets in a taxi and comes down to my apartment and we shot, we shot, one of them was a spoof about Amazon. 
it's hilarious. But anyway, like that was years ago, but it was really, it was really fun. I will be watching those as soon as this is over. <laughs> that is hilarious. Cause I mean, as you're, I mean, exceptionally funny as well. I mean, people, if, uh, if people haven't listened to revisionist history, um, even from reading the books, you'll get it, but, but certain episodes of revisionist history are certainly listening to you speak anything on online where you're, uh, where you're speaking somewhere. Um, so you and Cavett together, that, that is going to be a treat. And I'm looking forward and to that. Dave Hill's hilarious. Dave is a okay. comedian, an actual okay. comedian. So I don't know if I've heard yeah. him before, but I'm looking forward yeah. to that. Um, we also share a love of spy thrillers. And uh, oh, I was so, when yeah. I read that, I think I read it maybe in one of the, one of the books that I read over the years, um, but you talk about it on your, on revisionist history. Um, and I know one of your prized possessions is the spy who came in from the cold. Um, first edition. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm collecting all these first editions now of the paperbacks that I read growing up. So all the oh. David Morrells and Nelson DeMille's, AJ Quinnell, JC Pollock, Mark Olden, Tom Clancy, uh, all these guys who, you know, early eighties and into the, the nineties before Daniel Silva, before Vince Flynn, before that, that, yeah. that kind of crowd. Oh, I love that um, era. Yeah. It's fascinating. And I'm now I'm collecting all the signed first editions as well, but I kept all the paperbacks. So I have yeah. all those memories and I love that smell. I remember exactly where I was when I read all those books. Well, um, you can get, I remember once, uh, I was on a plane from New York to uh, L.A., and I decided I wanted to buy a bunch of first editions of the spy thrillers I loved reading growing up in the 70s and 80s. Went online, and I bought, I was on Amazon, and between, you know, on the duration of that flight, I basically bought a library. And, like, (laughs) you can get a pristine first edition of, you know, a a John, no, maybe not John Le Carre is a good example, but of a, you know, one of those classic novels in that era for, like, five bucks. Yeah, yeah. I put together this fantastic life, which is still in my, it's my, one of my prized possessions. The whole thing was like, you know, it was a hundred books for a couple hundred bucks. It was, it's sort of amazing. They get expensive when you get the signed first editions, especially once yes. the uh, authors passed away, like uh, yeah. Fleming or now Le Carre, but it's the signed first editions where they get you. So, so they're, yeah, they're, they're getting me. So my, my collection might be a tad bit. Um, yeah, but they're, they're definitely or, less expensive ways to do it. Uh, to do it. <laughs> yes. Are you a big, I'm a huge Stephen Hunter fan. Oh yeah. Huge. And he's a he great guy. One of my, He's pardon me. He's a great guy. He is. I've never. I've emailed yeah. with him. I've never met him, and I. I think there's a whole. There's about like he's written many many books. There's about ten of them. I think are f- really first mm-hmm. class, and there are sections of each of those that are as incredibly written, evocative. Mm-hmm. I mean, quite apart from the fact that he's got compelling characters and 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 is. Knows more about guns. I don't know whether he knows more about what guns than you, but <laughs> he knows a lot about guns. <laughs> he, he does. He does. We, we just emailed last night, actually. We were just emailing back and forth. He has a new book coming out, uh, three novellas. So from each of the three swagger generations. Uh, and I yeah, think the yeah, cover yeah. just uh, just dropped maybe yesterday. So uh, we were emailing back and forth about that well, last funny. night. Swaggers, the swagger family is one of the great families in American fiction. I agree. Just, no, I mean, he did, I, don't, I, I don't, these guys don't get enough love, some of these writers, because uh. writers like Hunter, you know, he, people, they, they say, oh, he's a genre writer and they kind of push him off to the side. No, no, no. He's legit, brilliant literary fiction writer who happens to write about, you know, write in the thriller genre. It's, but he's a, he's as 
as gifted a stylist and as brilliant oh. a plotter as anyone who's who's writing novels. Oh, yes. And I love that I can tell his works. I've been reading him for so long, and I told him this story. We talked about it. I, think I had him on my podcast. We talked about it. But I was reading a, an article, but I didn't see who the article was by. And I was reading it, and I said, oh, this this has got to be Stephen Hunter. And I flipped the page back, and sure enough, it was by Stephen Hunter. He's one of those those authors who you can you can recognize their writing by that style. Uh, yeah. And it's nobody else. No one else is even close to that. You can do it with Daniel Silva. Um, I think mm -hmm. Stephen Hunter and Daniel Silva, like those two guys, if I was to to pick a combination of people that I like most aspire to write like, even though I want to write like myself and have my my own style, which I I, that, I hope I do. Yeah. But uh, but those two guys stand out to me in the mo in in this in the modern living <laughs> generation of thriller writers. But uh, Stephen Hunter's great. He's gruff, uh, you know, and opinionated, and uh, he's also a Pulitzer Prize uh, winner and uh, just an incredible oh, yeah. incredible guy. Oh yeah, he blurred my book a... out of the gate, and he was uh, very kind to me. Um, and, uh, and he, he's fascinating, but where, where did your love of thrillers come from? Did, uh, did you pick one out of the library when you were younger or did one of your parents yeah. hand you one? Where did that come from? My dad used to read books to us every night before we went to bed. And there was a, he read all of the Sherlock Holmes stories to us mm -hmm. and that got me hooked on mystery, you know, uh. mysteries. And then I was also as a kid, absolutely, you know, I was like a, you know, a classic boy. I was obsessed with war and read endless books about wars and military history and things. And so, you know, the place where those two things meet, where mysteries and war books meet is, is spy thrillers. Mm -hmm. um, and so I kind of began to consume them. And all of these, the carry was the first to make me realize, took me a long time to like Le Carre because it's mm. grown up stuff. Yeah. It's not really a, these are books you should read when you're 13. Yeah. Um, but as a, when I, and what, and I realized, oh, you could, this is not, like I said, this is not genre work. This is, this guy's a serious novelist, um, oh. who's dealing with real. And, um, uh, I, it was right around the time I started, I became obsessed with Germany and would go to Germany all the time. Um, and so I loved reading books set in Cold War Germany. And so that mm. could have made me even more, because that's the kind of, you know, the symbolic heart of the spy thriller genre is Cold War Germany, right? Oh, it's yeah. like, so, um, or, or, or Moscow or yes. some version of that. But, um, so that I, I got, um, that was sort of how it, how it happened. Yeah. Um, well, I love that you're a, uh, you're, you're not afraid because there are a lot of, um, uh, closet thriller lovers out there, readers out there, but they they like to just say that they only read nonfiction. Um, at the, like, let's no, say, I'm, it's like it's, 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 you know who doesn't get enough love is, um, which is weird to say because he's sold more books than anyone, is Grisham. Mm -hmm. um, oh yeah, because he's he has some shortcomings as a writer, but as a his ability to put together a beautifully structured plot mm -hmm. is without parallel. Those books structurally are perfect. Yeah. They just like, the stories are so economically told, they're compelling, they're, there's something about it. He, that man has got an, just an insane gift. And I also love the way that there's, in many of his books, there's a real kind of um, moral center to them as well. They're yeah. not... He, I don't know. I feel, I feel like he's had an, an, you know, when the history of the last hundred years is written, I hope that they give him due credit. I feel like he's influenced an enormous number of people in the way they think about their society and how 
um, I don't know how it works and how it doesn't work and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but anyway, yeah, he's always someone I've admired. Yeah, no, he's right. fascinating. And actually, he, he was a, an influence on me for, a, well, a, a few different ways. But one, in that I always knew that, well, the story of him writing A Time to Kill first and not being able to give that book away and then mm-hmm. writing The Firm. And then that one, of course, skyrockets, worldwide, international bestseller. Tom Cruise stars in the movie. Then they go back and publish, again, they publish A Time to Kill, which I think, and I haven't read some of the newer things, but all through the 90s, I'm reading him, early 2000s, I'm reading everything that, that he writes. Um, but I think A Time to Kill is one of his best works. Um, yeah. and, it's, and it's his first one. But if he'd given up, after that first one, we wouldn't have a John Grisham novel every year. Uh, so yeah. I think of him now maybe making partner in a law firm or whatever else and just thinking back to, oh, man, I should have written that other book called The Firm. I really should have done that. And so <laughs> yeah. I was so I thought, it's, it's you know, a great, it's a great what if. Yeah. yeah. And so I was always I said, OK, if the first book doesn't work, I'm still writing the second. So even before I sent my first book to Simon and Schuster, I was on a plane to Mozambique to put boots on the ground over there and do research for my second novel because of that John Grisham story. So. Yeah. Uh, so I owe him a little debt of gratitude there. Yeah. The first one did did work, but um, but if it hadn't, and then if the second one hadn't worked, then I was going to reevaluate some of my uh, choices. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but that's the, the John Grisham story and his uh, the way he started out with uh, with the time to kill. And people haven't read it, uh, they should definitely read that novel, and it'll it'll start you down the path of of all things Grisham. Uh, have you read Charles McCary? Uh, oh, yeah. Tears of Autumn. I mean, amazing. Oh yeah, I've read many of. In fact, my fate, my um. My favorite Charles McCurry one is is um, is not the uh, what's his name Christopher uh, right. what's, the, um, what's his yeah Christopher Paul Christopher Paul, Paul Christopher is his hero. It's the one he write he writes one. Um, is it the oh Lucky Bastard? Okay. which is really about Clinton. Oh, I'm gonna read that one. Okay. Oh, you got to read Lucky Bastard. It's not a Paul Christopher one. Okay. It's a kind of one off. Yeah. It's really good. It's like yeah, he's a he's a he is enorm- he is enormously talented. Um, Did you meet him before uh, he passed away? No, I never did. Okay, the 2019, um, I think he passed away. Yeah, and um, there's a guy. Have you ever read any um, uh, Robert Littell? Yes, yes. I don't know how many books does he have. I have, I think, two. Oh, a lot. Yeah, a lot. They're they're kind of once you, you can't read. You gotta you have to limit yourself. Yes, to him. you can't agreed. read them all. But if you read three, you're a happier person as a result. I I agree. I agree. <laughs> they're different. You have to you have to give it some time. You have to commit um, to yeah, to at least yeah. getting through uh, one of those. Um, we also share. Well, I guess I love our fascination with vehicles, and I know you're a car person. Um, I'm a car guy. Yes. Wait, what do you what do you what do you drive? Well, I know you don't like SUVs, but I don't know if no, you. No, don't... that's not. But, oh, it's not? That's not true. Oh, that's oh, good. True. Let's let's. My feelings have evolved. Oh wow! I, there's a time and place for every automobile, ah. so it depends on what you're using it for. Ah, okay. I like this. You're living in Park City, Utah. I'm not going <laughs> to say you should be driving a Prius. Okay. I mean, come on. <laughs> okay, good. I was a little nervous about this subject. Um, no. But uh, I like classic. SUVs from the 80s, the ones I grew up with. So um, I have an 88 Land Cruiser, which I also put in my novel oh, and which nice. we put into the show. So I have a yeah. 88 Land Cruiser, a, a 78 uh, FJ40. Um, but, I, but I really like the 97 Land Cruiser, so the 80 series, um, because it's that 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 mix before everything went too modern. There's not uh-huh. a big computer screen on there. I can still twist some dials. It has a key. Uh, it's modern enough if you keep it up. And so 97, 40th anniversary, uh, 80 series Land Cruiser is the one that I drive more often than not. But um, they seem to be multiplying the Land Cruisers anyway. Um, I oh, like to give them a, a home Land and a new fixation. I do. Yes, I do. Yes. yes. No, that's honorable. I oh, think that's yeah. honorable. <laughs> I, I have no issue with that. Um, I like sports sedans. Mm. So. I have a uh, 2003 
BMW M5. Okay, nice. Uh, manual transmission V8. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a a black Cadillac CT4 Blackwing, which is, I think, is the greatest sports sedan I've ever I've ever okay. driven. I mean, it's an extraordinary car. I don't know. That's another. That's another brand that doesn't get enough love. They they make the best Cadillac makes the best cars in the world. They make for seventy thousand dollars. They'll sell you a car that if you wanted to buy the near equivalent, not as good, the near equivalent from a German manufacturer would be twice as much. No kidding. Right. Interesting. Like or a Corvette. The Corvettes are essentially as good as McLarens, and McLarens cost mm. two fifty, three hundred thousand, yeah. and you can get a Corvette for under a hundred. People don't do that calculation. They don't understand like making something great for fifty thousand dollars as in a car. Um that your competitor can only make for $150,000 is an insane accomplishment. Yeah. Right. And you got to reward that. Like <laughs> that. So I feel, I feel like you have to understand the constraints. What makes a car interesting is the constraint that it was operating under. Okay. So when I drive my Blackwing, the constraint was that they did not want it to, they didn't want to price it so high that no one except the top 1% could afford it. Yeah. Right. That's a really interesting constraint. Yeah. And how they resolve that is what makes the car fascinating. Okay. If you, it's boring. If I say to you, build a car and sell for a million dollars, that's a completely uninteresting automobile. Yeah. Like, who uh, cares? Yeah. Like, you could give you a million. Of course, you, of course it's great. <laughs> but it's not interesting. It's like, it wasn't hard. Uh, but you and I, you and I could start a car company tomorrow. And if we were told we had a thousand dedicated buyers at a million dollars each, mm-hmm. we could pull it off. Yeah. No, no, no question. Yeah, no challenge. But if we were to, if we were told we had a hundred thousand buyers at thirty five thousand dollars each, uh, there is no chance we could pull it off. Yeah. Zero. Oh, where did this come from for you? Did you? Because I, I love the story that you tell in one of your the podcasts about your dad and you're going down the uh, taking the off ramp or the on ramp, and you guys. Oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> and he was you, speed, <laughs> my dad was a speed demon. Okay. He, uh, he, yeah, he's taken he's taken the off ramp on the. In the middle of the winter, way too fast, as was his want. <laughs> and it's icy, hits black ice, slides down the slope until he's facing the wrong way on the on-ramp. <laughs> my mother's like screaming. My brothers are like, you know, their hearts. I actually thought it was really cool. <laughs> and then he, so he drives off the on-ramp, mm-hmm. spins around in the road and says, turns around and says to us, oh, this is where I wanted to go all along. <laughs> I love, I love those stories about your your dad. What kind of car was that back then? That, if memory serves, was a uh, Peugeot four hundred five. Oh wow! Four, probably good in that. That completely now, fits so, with the image that I have yeah, of you um, and your family. And, you know, I've learned of your dad through your podcasts and and writing. So he, this is the interesting thing about my dad, which will resonate with you. Um, uh. Because I think it's very similar. This is the only this is the only similarity between my dad and Navy SEALs. But <laughs> so my dad had a had a resting heart rate of it was it was very very low forties or high thirties. Mm. And if you think about that physiologically, that means that you know if you in times of stress, if his heart rate doubles, he's at eighty. Yeah, which is what most people are normally. Okay. So my dad, under conditions of extraordinary stress, nice. still appears to be and is physiologically as calm as most people are walking down the street, uh-huh. right? And I, you know, I am a hundred percent convinced that 
if you, and you would know this for a fact, but if I took a group of Navy SEALs or Rangers or whatever, and I looked at their resting heart rates and compared them to their heart rates under stress, nobody is over, in positions of stress, is over 75 or 80. And at resting, they're in the 40s. That's what, that's part of the prerequisite to be that type is you cannot be in a, in a, in a position of high stress and have your have your heart be jumping out of your chest. You just can't function, right? Yeah. And one of the things you learn over time, I, again, I'm, I feel like I'm telling this to someone who knows more about it than I do. One of the things you obviously learn at a time is how to control your physiological responses in high stress. And that was, my dad was just really, really, really good at that. He just couldn't even, you know, I he there's a story of him once, He's in his 70s, late 70s. He and my mom are vacationing in a little um, cottage on the coast of Jamaica. He goes to take a shower. He hears my mother scream. He comes out and he sees a man holding a machete to my mother's throat who says, give me all your money. Understand, my, my dad's probably 78 or 79. He is stark naked, dripping wet. This guy's like 25 years old. He looks at the guy, points at him and says, Get out now. The guy leaves. Runs wow. away. Runs away. Wow. <laughs> so like That's... and for he's... people who are listening, your dad is a mathematician. He's a mathematician with a big bushy beard. <laughs> and he's 160 pounds, five, nine or five, ten. He's not a physically imposing. But in that moment, what so what's terrifying that guy with the machete in that moment? It is the notion of a 79-year-old guy who's 150 pounds and naked and dripping wet, who is not showing the slightest trace of fear or apprehension. Wow. That's, I'm sorry, fucking terrifying. Wow. <laughs> if, you're, if you're that guy, you're like, holy shit, yeah. what is this guy going to do next, yeah, right? That's I mean, wild. he's not even, he is, the love of his life is like, sitting with yeah. a machete to his neck and he's completely unfazed. That's crazy. Wow. That's, that's amazing. So, I've not heard you tell that story up before. I might have missed it, but I've never heard that before. That is amazing. Yeah. Jeez. But that's but that's what you're yeah. that's what we're trying to teach people in your old world, right? Is that. Yeah, it becomes like, normal. It becomes your your normal living in that kind of a, a world and environment. And some people adapt to it and uh, and others others do not. And some people compensate and have issues and yeah. there's so there's a, a, a lot to it. But um but yeah, that's that's wild. I that story is pretty crazy. I, I I love that story. I wonder where that came from. If it's just natural, or um, I know he he was uh, he, he was uh, in World War II. Him, he has memories or had memories of uh, bombings and and all that. Hiding when, when the Germans are bombing, and also maybe yeah. at an early age. I don't know if it was just natural. He was, was, he's just was. Not, I think a lot of that was. He's just not. So he's just someone who was, yeah. like I said, he naturally had this really low. Rest, you know, heart yeah. rate, and he was super rational. Kind of, he wasn't someone who was, um, and his he never kind of lost. He wasn't someone who, I think, you know, he also realized as a husband and parent, it um, it didn't help if he was perceived as having lost his cool. Yeah, right. No good came of that. It was his job to be the one who was, huh. um, and I think that's that's probably a lot of it as well. I like that. Hence the spinning off the interstate and, and, uh, that's right. calm and is, that's right. exactly where I wanted totally to be. Calm. It's fantastic. <laughs> it is amazing. Service isn't just what Navy Federal Credit Union does. It's who they are. 
That's why Navy Federal created tools to help you earn and save more. Make your financial goals a reality with great rates and low fees. Members enjoy earnings and savings of $473 per year by banking with Navy Federal. An average credit card APR that's 6% lower than the industry average. A market-leading regular savings rate nearly two times the industry average. Learn more at NavyFederal.org slash offers. I've been a member of Navy Federal since I enlisted in the Navy in 1996 and have had nothing but positive experiences with them for what is now closing in on 30 years. Wherever we were stationed, whether at home or abroad, Navy Federal was by our side. Navy Federal has made it their mission to help military members and their families tackle home ownership. With their new no-refi rate drop option, you can buy a home now. And if rates drop later, you can then lower your rate without refinancing. Plus, they also offer mortgage options with zero down payment. So you don't need to wait years to save at Navy Federal. Our members are the mission. Find out more at NavyFederal.org. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, membership required, equal housing lender, open to the armed forces, the DOD, veterans, and their families. NavyFederal.org. Uh, we also share an obsession with endings, um, and uh, and I hadn't really thought of it that way until I heard you articulate it as such, and then I realized that I have this as well, um, because you can get to love a movie, love a book, and then get to that ending, and all of a sudden, now you do not, you're not recommending this book, you don't like this book anymore, or you frame it as, oh, I loved it, except the ending. Uh, yeah, and but that- you can't, can you, Jack, can you say that? Is it possible to say of something, I loved it except for the ending? Because what you're really saying is you don't love it. I don't know because, uh, and the one that my mind jumps to um, is uh, is Denzel Washington in Man on Fire, Tony Scott film. Uh, oh, it's the second one time. of my favorite movies. Isn't it great? I love that yeah. movie. Have you watched the alternate ending? No, so there's vi- an alternate there's ending. an alternate ending and almost never. And I can't even think of an example where I've watched the alternate ending and liked it better. Usually there's a reason that that alternate mm-hmm. ending was not used. Um, in this case, I like the alternate ending much better. And I didn't know there was an alternate ending when I saw it the first time in 2004, whenever it came out, mm-hmm. five time frame, whenever that was. Um, and I just watched the movie and I've, I'd read the book. Uh, I read it in the mm-hmm. 80s. I'd reread it. Um, and I'd watched the first film that they did in the 80s with um, Scott Glenn. And, um, and, and I thought there was a, I, I thought they just might've missed the ending. Although I love the whole movie. And maybe it's because I read the book and I'd seen the other the other adaptation in the '80s, um, which isn't great. The Denzel Washington one is is wonderful, is, but yeah. the alternate ending is really good. Wait, I, now really I, good. I now I don't I don't want you to tell me uh, what yeah. it is because now I, wait, where do I find the I, alternate ending? It was a DVD, and I don't even know where you'd find it today unless you had the DVD because you could go through that you know the menu and go down and click on the alternate ending thing yeah. and 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 watch it. And usually it wasn't color treated yet and didn't have those you know it wouldn't look like the movie, but you could you could see it. I did like it better, but it's yeah. one of those things where I feel comfortable saying I love that movie. And uh, but that ending, I think the alternate is a little better. It's a dangerous thing, though, to tell the reader or to to let the reader or the listener or the viewer um, know that there might be another possibility. You don't want to because they're going to lose faith in you as a storyteller if they think, oh, you're ending it this way. But actually, there's a better one out there. Mm. It's like 
it kind of ruins it. I want to know that I'm in the I'm in capable hands. Yeah. And someone's given someone has resolved the problem in the best possible way. And I don't, you know, it's like I worry that if I saw the alternate ending of Man on Fire, it would in some way impair my enjoyment of the Tony Scott movie. I don't know. I didn't feel that. I didn't I didn't get that. That I didn't that wasn't my experience. Uh, but maybe it's because I've read all the books that have Creasy as the main character as well. I know there's there's yeah. more that he survives and goes on to these other uh, through these yeah. uh, through these other narratives, and um, so 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 that that's 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 one. But usually, yeah, I can't think of another um, either yeah. book or or film. But uh, but the ending's important, and I start with the ending. Um, oh, when you I'm start writing. with so you, oh, you actually do. I know where I'm going. Well, I shouldn't say I start with it. I know the ending and I have it outlined. So I start with a, a theme. I have that title. So I'm not wasting bandwidth thinking of a worried mm-hmm. about a, a title, even if it's going to change later. I do a one page executive summary. Um, and I ask myself, is this worth the next year of my life? Um, and mm-hmm. the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. I read it again. And I say, if someone was to be walking by Hudson news and was to pull this book off the shelf and read the back, would they be willing to invest time that they're never going to get back in these pages and if the answer is yes or a reasonable person or i would uh then that's my that's my next book and i turn that one page executive summary into the outline but at uh, part of that outline is the end and i know mm-hmm. where i'm going i don't write by i'm not a pantser writing by the seat of my pants there might be sections or chapters where i'm a, a pantser but mm-hmm. uh, i know where i'm going i know that ending and i like that i like knowing knowing where i'm yeah. going because it is so important um and it's I, really there was a <clears throat> i thought of this when um I'm a big fan of Thomas Perry and mm-hmm. oh, yeah. who is a, he plots beautifully, yeah. but they did a movie adaptation or a TV adaptation of one. And I've forgotten what it was called. The old, last man. Year. the old man, the old man. And <clears throat> which I really, really, really liked, mm-hmm. but I think it fell apart in the last, when I say fell apart, the last couple of episodes were not as strong as I thought it was going to be as strong and it, it kind of fell off and, and it really it what disappointed me about that was that when you when you watch on television adaptation of someone you really love as a writer mm-hmm. you want them to honor the writer's strengths you know if you're if you're going to do a movie version of jack reacher jack reacher's got to be he's got to be six foot six you can't have much as I love Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise is not Jack Reacher. Yeah. Right? It's just a violation. <laughs> they have yeah. A guy who's my yeah. size, I, five foot nine. Yeah. Be Jack Reacher. Like, I, no part of Jack Reacher <laughs> is five foot nine. I'm sorry. It's like the whole thing is a big, he's a big block of granite. Yes. Right? People had a big issue with, with that. I, I heard Correct. Lee Child say, <laughs> I heard Lee Child Correct. say uh, in an interview, he said, there are worse things in life than having one of the most popular movie stars in the world portray your character. And that's kind of how he, so I, which I understand. <laughs> but, um, but the same thing with that, with the old man, it was like, oh, I was like, you're adapting Tom Perry, who's just brilliant at endings, right? He just ties yeah. them up so elegantly. And and in this one, it's like we had the love interest, and then she kind of disappeared. Did she? Because like, I didn't watch the last couple episodes. Something happened. Well, I think we yeah. went somewhere, and I didn't finish. I it. think I think we're going to see another season. In which okay. case, maybe I'm going to give them another. But I did love the whole that whole idea of you know this old mm-hmm. man who kind of yeah from another era who has oh, yeah. to come back. It's just fantastic. Yeah. It's fantastic. Did you read the book also? Uh huh. Yeah. So the book so a different. You know they 
changed. Obviously, you're gonna change. it's an adaptation. It's a different different medium. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, both fantastic. It's a good case study in an adaptation. I think as is the Sun. Did you read the Sun by Philip Meyer? About Texas, history of Texas. Oh, no. should I? Oh, it's fantastic. It's one of the best books that I've read over. You've read I Am Pilgrim, right? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, though, very different, obviously. One's a uh, espionage, you know, thriller like we're yeah. talking about now. And then The Sun is the history of Texas, kind of like, uh, uh, like War and Remembrance or Winds of War by Herman Woke would be a history of, of, mm-hmm. uh, uh, of World War II through the eyes of, of a family. But, uh, but this is the history of Texas, multi generational, told in a non linear fashion. Um, incredible. And then it's adapted. I think AMC did it. Um, Pierce Brosnan stars as the protagonist. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. They, they, that's probably one of the best adaptations that I've seen, at least season one. Um, so oh, it is definitely I'm worth. Gonna, I'm writing this down. Yeah. All right. Yeah. No, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, and I, I think I might know your least favorite ending. Is it uh, a Star is Born movie? Or is it only uh, because, or is it only because you researched it and know that? Well, I did that one. No, I mean, I, I would never say that was, there's a variety, you know, um, that story is so rich mm. and that's why the movie's been made so many yeah. times. It's very hard to criticize it. Um, <laughs> it's what, what's my favorite. I can't on the top of my head. What I don't like is multiple endings mm. where it's, you feel like there's six of them and then and the book could have ended 20 pages before it actually ends uh, that I don't like. I don't like the yeah. movies either where you say, wait a minute, if I had left for the bathroom with ten minutes to go, yeah. I would have had a more satisfying. Oh, um, that—that's the thing that really yeah. annoys me. It's almost like they, and I feel like people, thriller writers think that they need to give you an ever more elaborate payoff. Mm. But sometimes a quiet, emotionally important mm-hmm. payoff is the biggest payoff of all. I don't nece- I don't always need to have massive pyrotechnics in order to yeah. feel satisfied. Yeah. Um, that's my biggest, um, if you've taken me on the journey, I'm, I'm there. I've, yeah. I've invested, I'm on page 358. Yeah. I'm not leaving you. Right. I'm, you know, I'm, <laughs> I love you. Like, just, just make me happy. Don't, yeah. don't act like you're all skittish and kind of nervous about what I'll stick around. Yeah. No, I love hearing that. I love hearing that. Cause I do put a lot of thought into, to endings and I love, so it's it, like the, the, the art of it, I think is that enough resolution um, where that the the reader feels like they're getting that that return on that investment, but then also uh, I want to read the next one. So if it's a series, yes. Uh, so that's kind of what I'm what I'm thinking about as I'm doing the ending. But I do like the non typical Hollywood endings. If we're talking film, like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, uh, with the freeze frame coming out, the shots. Like I love that yeah. as a kid. I remember great memories watching that as a kid. No Way Out, Kevin Costner at the end when he starts. Uh, spoiler alert for anybody. Have you seen it? Yes, of okay. course. Yeah, so yeah, when he starts like speaking, uh, when he starts speaking Russian yeah. at the end, like those types of one, I love that. Of course, Usual Suspects, like I love those endings, but then I also like Hollywood did endings. You, wait, I have, I have a question for you about Usual Suspects. Did you anticipate, in any of those cases you just given, did you anticipate the twist? Um, I was very young for Butch Casting the Sundance Kid, so I didn't know that. Yeah. No way out, no, because I was in my... Yeah like maybe freshman or maybe eighth grade or something, something like that. So I'm still thinking that uh, classic, like everything's going to be the classic Robin Hood, Errol Flynn ending. Like that's the end of all, yeah. all, all movies to me at that, at that stage. Um, but uh, did I, did I anticipate usual suspects? And I don't think so. I was a little older, obviously when that came out, I saw that in the theater. Um, no, I don't, I don't think so. But because of your podcast, free Brian Williams on memory. So oftentimes I think about the conflation and memory and, uh, 
So yeah. I, I, I like to be very careful about what I say. I remember and things that, uh, oh, I that see what might well, possibly. Yeah, that also applies to that movie. That movie is a, is a movie about memory in part about like that kind of, and it's playing on our expectations about the stories people tell is yeah. um, I didn't see that. Although I, I, I deliberately disable uh, my um, critical faculties when I'm smart. watching um, because I, I feel it ruins it. Yes. And I enjoy it. Um, and I, as a result, I often miss things the first time around and I have to kind of go back and pick up on, on, um, think little clues that I missed. Yeah. Cause I'm just kind of in, in non thinking, enjoying mode. But, yep. Uh, yep. No, that's a good, I love doing, doing the same thing and not picking things apart while I'm enjoying it. Cause that's my time to sit there and enjoy it. So, police officers, firefighters, people in the military are typically the worst people to watch films with because they'll point out every single thing that is wrong with the police procedural or whatever it might be yeah. that you're, you're watching yeah. tactics or, you know, all those things. So I put, I try to put that aside unless it's completely egregious. Um, I try to put all that aside to enjoy it, but I also like regular Hollywood endings um, uh, because probably because of those movies I watched growing up, uh, the sixties bond films, the endings of those ones, uh, you know, those are always fun. Um, of course, it, yeah. the Errol Flynn ones, of course, uh, Rocky three freeze frame right there with the, uh, uh, yeah, Apollo Creed and Stallone this, right there. This remind, that comment you made about um, police officers, military people are the toughest to watch. It reminds me, I did this um, in the upcoming Visions History series uh, season. Um, we have a bunch of things on gun, a bunch of shows on guns. Mm -hmm. And one of them is one where I go and to a range and shoot uh, a, um, an AR. AR. I listened to it. Yeah. Oh, you did listen I to I listened it. to them all. Oh, yes. Oh, good. Oh, I didn't yeah. realize that. So that's about this in the sense that one of the things that's maddening about assault rifle bands is that they are, they, they, they kind of traffic on the, they're predicated on the ignorance that, it's too strong a word, but the lack of knowledge that most people have of guns. Mm -hmm. One of my things is, you know, I, one of the issues I have with, any kind of government regulation, but particularly in this area, is you cannot predicate any kind of law regulation change on exploiting people's lack of understanding. You've got to be honest. If I really want to convince um, gun owners and supporters of the Second Amendment that I would like them to uh, modify their rights, I need to be honest. And I think with the the, the whole episode, that whole episode is all about the consequences of our dishonesty. Mm -hmm. So the, the 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 gun control types, you know, realize that most people don't know the difference between a semi-automatic weapon and an automatic weapon, mm. and they use that to say, "Hey, this particular kind of weapon is uniquely dangerous," and it's not true. And it, you know, I imagine that at some point you and I might have differences when it comes to gun control, but. I think we would be in agreement that you can't have an argument in America where one side is deliberately lying. Like it just offends me. So I mean, you heard of that episode. I, oh yeah. I, we got very I contentious there. I was, the, I was surprised. <laughs> I was like, he, so I, just for those who are listening in that, uh, in the episode where I. Episode four. Episode four. Is that it? I think it's episode yeah, think four. It's four. At the end I go and I interview one of the leading gun control advocates in Washington, mm -hmm. a guy who's been pushing assault rifle bans for God knows how many years. And he basically admits that an assault rifle ban is is based on the fact that most people don't know the difference between an automatic and semi-automatic rifle weapon. And he pissed me off. I was, after interviewing, I was 
furious. I was like, this, am I allowed to swear in this podcast? Absolutely. Okay. This fucking clown. <laughs> and like, you know, he sets back a legitimate, what I consider to be in part of a legitimate cause, or at least he sets back the honest attempt by many people in this country to reach a compromise mm-hmm. on this issue by just flat out lying. And also, as it, the more I talked to him, we cut out a lot of that interview. Mm. It was clear he didn't know the slightest thing about guns. Yeah. And I'm sorry, if you want to be an advocate of gun control, will you please educate yourself first on what a gun is? Yeah. Like, it just, the whole thing was like, and I feel like people who are big, who are big, you know, gun enthusiasts hear that and roll their eyes and just disengage and just it's say, true. how am I supposed to have a, how am I supposed to trust these people? That they'll do what they'll what they say they're going to do yeah. when they're flat out lying from the get go. Yeah, that's a big part of it, I think. It's a, so there's like there's no attempt to to um, to repair. I think yeah. that um, uh, that trust. Anyway, that was that sort of got me. That episode really radicalized me in a uh-huh. in a certain number in a in a certain way. It made me realize that there's a lot of bad faith on all sides of that issue. Yeah. Well, what I appreciate about you always, always have well before this, because I've been uh, well reading the books from the from the beginning, and I think I was one of the as soon as I found out there was a podcast, which was uh, right when I got out of the military. I remember making my family listen to season one as we we're driving our daughter up Cal- the coast of California to camp in Northern oh, really? California from San Diego. I'm making them all listen to revisionist history in 2016 because I was like, this is, this is amazing. <laughs> oh, I know, and I know it, I. It, I mean, fan, incredible. I mean, hallelujah. I still think when I think about the hallelujah um, episode, oh my gosh. I mean, I just get like emotional thinking about a lot of the episodes yeah. I think are, I mean, some of them are funny. Some of them are serious. Um, some of them are just so emotional and, and hard hitting. All of them are thoughtful. And that's what I've always mm-hmm. appreciated about you. I've tried to to be that way and whether it's just the way I live my life, try to be thoughtful um, in anything that I do. Um, and especially now, uh, I feel like that's what I, what I owe my readers yeah. listeners is to uh Wait, what, to bring a what, thoughtful what, how, perspective how many do you how many kids do you have three three and i know you have a new one and i was gonna I ask two. you if that's I two two, two. Oh, my I'm, goodness i don't know if i'm gonna go for three but uh, <laughs> two maybe where uh, i don't know how you but anyway uh, you know separately uh, how you did three i'd be very curious to know how that's possible chaos constant exhaustion uh prioritizing things that uh or deprioritizing things that are like yes, exercise it, the, health sleep uh eating right like those things still completely uh <laughs> not, not just the bottom of the list but off the list when it comes to making deadlines and writing scripts and doing all these things that, are, that have going on it's are, it's are chaos. any of your kids interested in um the military like I in think if there's one, so what we have, uh, our daughter just left for college, um, two days ago. And so she's off to, off to college. And I was going to talk to you about that too, cause she was born in 2005. So that mm-hmm. means that, uh, outliers came out in 2008. So in yeah. kindergarten, the book had been out. Oh, and by the way, for those who haven't read these books, you should read them all. But outliers this week, as of yesterday, 366 weeks on the New York times bestseller list. That's, that's like seven years. That's uh, that's incredible. I mean, and it's on the business yeah. section too. Um, uh, almost as good as Diary of a Wimpy Kid. That's that you're close to. They're they're at seven hundred and fifty. I'm a good company. I'm a good <laughs> pretty company. close. Pretty, pretty close. <laughs> also, a book. That's also a book about me. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's one of our one of our, our youngest favorite. He's uh, he's he's twelve um, now. But our so our daughter went to was going to kindergarten, and everyone had mm-hmm. read Outliers. 
So all these parents are talking about it and they're holding their kids back. They're doing the red shirt thing mm-hmm. at yeah, that time. Our daughter, we, we kept, she was, she's uh, uh, 18 now. So we kept, we didn't, we didn't hold her back, but I'd yeah. say maybe half the class at that, at that point did. Um, and I think Why, more so in the years later. Mm-hmm. Why didn't the schools observe this and say, oh, wait a minute, let's just divide up classes by a month of birth. Like it's know. just so easy. Or the testing. If you've got a school with three first grade classes, make one grade for January to March and one from April to June and one from, you know, like mm-hmm. it's just not that hard. Why should a January kid be in the same first grade classroom as a December kid? That's yeah. nuts. Yeah. And instead, they just have never done that. And I, to this day, I cannot figure out why. Yeah. So, Huge and what bureaucracy. they do when they don't do that is they force parents then to adjust, mm-hmm. you know. If you if you got a December kid, you have a decision to make. Do I is my kid tough enough, and will they benefit from being the youngest? Or if your kid has got vulnerabilities, mm-hmm. you're adding another significant vulnerability if you're making them the youngest in the class. Yeah. And is your kid? Can your kid deal with that? Some kids can't, right? Yeah. And I like the schools can so easily address this, and they don't. Yeah. It drives me bananas. I you know, think the, yeah. Last year we did a pack of and this guy pointed out that. Even something as simple as when we do standardized assessment tests yeah. for kids, we have them all take it on the same day mm-hmm. and we try to compare the results. That's crazy. Yeah. We have a group of seventh graders all taking the test on you know, May 1st. There are some kids who are 12 months older than the others. Yep. How can you compare their, how yeah. can you compare their, their test scores? Yeah, yeah, we, yeah we do. Ten, some of them have been around for 10% longer. I yeah. mean, it's just... <laughs> It's just like this kind of thing. And I just know when my kids get to school age, it's going to drive me uh-huh. even crazy. <laughs> I was going to ask you what your, your plan is. Because we did, my wife and I have a similar experience. We were, uh, uh, you know, what back then would have been the normal age to go through through school. So mm. um, uh, there were younger kids, there were older kids. You're right, kind of in the middle. But the things that I did where there were older kids, whether it was camps or sports camps or school or, or whatever, I look back and even at the time, I liked that. I liked going to a camp that had older kids because it forced me to up my game. So even back mm-hmm. then, I liked that. Um, I realized not everybody is going to be in the same same boat there. But um, so we, we just let our daughter go through as one quote unquote normally normally would. Um, but what, what are your plans? Have you thought about this for when your, uh, your kids well, get two, to that age? My two girls are both August. Mm. So they're going to be, depending on when the cutoff is, they'll either be in the middle or if the cutoffs are September 1st, they're going to be the youngest. Um, And I'm, I mean, I think my concern in writing that part of Outliers was for kids who had a lot of existing vulnerabilities, Mm -hmm. who maybe had a learning disorder, who one parent home, lower income background and adding on, if you already have those disadvantages and you add the disadvantage of being the youngest in your class, Mm -hmm. life is hard. Yeah. Um, if you're a kid from a privileged background, it's not that much of an issue. So, you know, my kids, you know, thankfully do not come from, will not come from a disadvantaged background. Hopefully they won't have a learning disorder, knock on wood. Mm -hmm. And so in that case, I'm not going to worry about it. And I think you're right there. Ultimately it can be a real advantage to be the youngest because you have to, like you said, you got up your game and if you're the smallest on the field, you know, uh, that means that you have to learn how to to strategize mm-hmm. and outthink your opponents and use your weaknesses to your advantage. So it's like, if your kid is capable of compensating in that way, they're going to be better off. 
The problem is that not everybody is. Mm -hmm. So I see it'll just be a, um, it'll just be a judgment call yeah. um, based on what, you know, my perception of how tough they are. Um, you know, every, I've been trying to, I, I've been trying to, I've been trying to instill some toughness. Oh yeah. Team. What have you been doing? Yeah. I, I go running with her and whenever she slows down, I yell at her. <laughs> my coach used to yell at me. Oh, no. Strong body makes a strong mind. <laughs> hey, there it's, yeah, there's a lot to that. There's a lot to That's one of the other things we have in common is that, uh, that I ran growing up and I ran hills and uh, I wouldn't know it today, but it, I actually, I thought, I think it really helped me when I got to the, the SEAL teams and when hell week is really just about not quitting. I mean, there's things that you have to do and you have yeah. to pass leading up and then things you have to do after yeah. that. But the hell week portion, when you're awake for the whole week and you're just moving and running with the logs and the boats and doing all these things. Just don't quit. And uh, so I thought back to the time running cross country, running these uh -huh. hills, and then, yeah, running it with the team. So you have people in front of you, behind you, and that sort of a thing. But also training on my own, which I think was even more valuable because I could run those same hills, and I did, by myself, and it would have been easy to stop. No one would have mm -hmm. known. Coach wouldn't know. Peers wouldn't know. And I could have stopped because it, it's for those who run and you run up hills and it, it can be painful. And I didn't. So I always, and even on the beach, all those years later, when I'm running with the boat over my head or doing whatever I'm doing in hell mm -hmm. week, I thought back to those times in fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, when I'm doing those things that it would have been easy to quit uh, in the middle yeah. of, and no one would have known, but I didn't. And I remembered not That's stopping. Um, yeah. And so I, so I, so running is so valuable. Um, Wait, Jack, at your most fit, how fast could you run a mile? Ooh, I don't know because we stopped running just a mile um, and there was no running just a mile in oh, soft see. sand. So it's three miles soft sand, bud. So my, oh, I see. So there's not, Wait, did you, did you see that thing? Did you think about, about, um, about uh, Mark Zuckerberg, who's now become obsessed with military training? No, and I just, does, I saw the March martial arts stuff. I haven't seen uh, military no, training. So he does this workout. He posted it on, on his social, on, on, on Facebook. He does a workout. I don't think it's a SEAL workout, mm. but it's an equivalent military workout okay. where you do, uh, is it 100 pull-ups, 100 push-ups, mm -hmm. and then you run, is it two miles with a 25-pound weight? Yeah. And you have to see what your total time is. I think there's one more thing that, in there, but uh, it's the Murph. The Murph challenge is probably what it is. Uh, that's that sounds, what it, that's yeah, what it is. That's what it sounds like. But he posted, like. now I've never, I had no context for evaluating how good it was, but he posts his time and a lot of serious people say, oh, my goodness, mm. that's pretty good. Yeah. So he's not, he's, I guess, what, 40? Probably. Right around his mid 40s. He's fit. Yeah. I mean, he's not massive fit, but impressively. Sure. I was, I saw that. I was like, my first thought, of course, like any former competitive athlete was, wait, what would, what would how, could, <laughs> how could I do that? <laughs> I don't that think is... I can do the, the pull-ups are the problem for me. Yeah. Especially with the weight that you could put because you do it with the weight vest. Oh, you the, do it with the yeah. weight vest. Yeah. So you do 25. Oh my God. That's so you're insane. taking time. So you're doing maybe five at a time, dropping another five, drop, whatever your strategy is um, to get through those hundred pull-ups. And then I think it's hundred sit-ups, hundred push-ups, and then you run the mile, come back and, or three miles, whatever, whatever the, that is. It's been a while since I've, what's I've the weight. It. How much is the weight vest? I 25 think, pounds? I think it's 25. I'm not sure. I remember doing it in Baghdad in the heat of the, well, not the heat of the summer. I guess I did it in the spring. So it would be 2000 and yeah, there's no cold. There's no cool and Baghdad. <laughs> there can be, <laughs> there can be in the winter. It can get cool, but the summer, oh my God, goodness. Yeah. Oh my. But, uh, but yeah, that was the first time I did it. Cause it was, uh, it was designed, um, uh, for Michael. Wait, Murphy. you have to wait, Jake, you have to look this up 
and tell me, just please look it up and tell me whether, how impressive you think Zuck's time I is. will. I will. I'll have to go back because I did keep my notebooks that have my time from back then. Yeah. And then so yeah. I have notebooks here that kept track so of most of everything. Goal? Walk me through this. What's the hardest in that routine? I should look what, it up so I don't mess it up. Uh, but uh, so it's pull-ups, I think sit-ups. We have to look this up and, uh, and push-ups and the run. And I think yeah. you... So the hardest part, I guess, is going to be, you know, different for everybody. Some people are just amazing. For you, at these I'm oh, for me, it's going to be, well, now, now it's all going to be very difficult for uh, me. But uh, I think the pull-ups, yeah, pull-ups. Yeah, I think it's, because I looked, I could, I looked at Zuckerberg's breakdown and I said, I think I could run that faster. The running is fine. The, I don't, I've never done it, but I don't perceive, I do workouts with a 25 pound weight sometimes uh -huh. and it doesn't strike me. I feel I could easily run nine minute miles or yeah. even in the eights with 25 pounds. It was only three miles and I could do the sit-ups easy. The pull-ups would be impossible. Yeah. Impossible. You can do them like one at a time. Know. I'd have to spend a lot of time Yeah, and the push-ups would be, I just don't have the upper body. And they, as you know, they fight against each other. The stronger my upper body is, yeah. the more <clears throat> I'm going to take a hit on the running. So like, <laughs> it's, it's that balance. Yeah. It's like, the, it's like, um, it's like Iron Man try. I mean, you're. it's just all compromises. Yeah. If I want to be better a swimmer, I'm going to have to compromise on my, well, the bi biking running is a, that's a, con those are in some senses contradictory. Yeah. Um, and you have to decide what you, what the kind of middle, middle route is. Yeah. You know, um, so I did a little experiment. I did, um, I went to the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California for six months. Uh, they wanted me to learn French. Um, so yeah. I was, they thought I was going to do some, uh, a mission in North Africa, West Africa, which I did, but I had an yeah. interpreter with me the whole time. So now my French is gone. First it mixed with my Spanish. And then, then I got the French and was very confident. Then I went and did the, the thing in Africa. And yeah. then I had an interpreter the whole time and never used it again. So anyway, but while I was there, I went up to uh, do the escape from Alcatraz triathlon. Um, and I wanted to see if what I was doing as uh, functional fitness training just to be good at essentially mm -hmm. moving with uh, my body armor and my rifle and all these things um, through through different types of terrain in and out of windows that sort of a sort of a, something that would, was going to prepare me for that how that would translate over to the mm -hmm. uh, triathlon and so I did but I did swim because I'm a seal and so I'm swimming yeah. also that's just uh, so I did that but uh, no bike so I got up there and I went and rented a bike and I hadn't uh -huh. really ridden a bike probably since high school. And, uh, so I remember I didn't, I was my, I was doing something with a family. So I rented this thing and I just put it where I was supposed to put it and did my sign in the day before. And okay, I didn't even ride it. I just picked it up and I just, you know, kind of like looked at it and okay. And so swim, great run, great bike. No, no, the, no, all those, it was awful. Um, one, because I hadn't trained for that specific you got to do it. Yeah, even, bike specific even, training. Jack, even a week on the bike oh, would have improved your zero. performance 50%. Yeah, I did zero. and But also, not only was I just physically not prepared for the bike, yeah. but I, I didn't know how to change the gears because I hadn't done it in 15 years. And I get on this thing and I'm like, and I'm at the base of the first hill. I'm just doing circles as everyone's flying past me because I got out of the water very quickly. Um, uh. And then I think the bike came next and then the run, I think. But anyway, I'm at the base of this hill and it's in San Francisco because you just swam from Alcatraz. And an, a spectator tells me how to change the gears, yells at me and tell, I'm like, oh, cause I thought it was going to be, you know, breaking away, Jack, you know, the movie is, from the, the most eight. embarrassing story you could ever tell. I should never, I'm going to edit this a out. A seal goes into a try unprepared. <laughs> this is like, 
all every instructor you ever had is like is like saying no. And, and I'm a big prepare you- person. Like I'm all about being prepared. Like we're talking about uh, obsessions and in, in the bomber mafia, you talk about obsessions, yours and the the people in the bomb you yeah. know, that you're talking that you're, you're you're writing about. But uh, I'm I guess an obsession is being prepared. But I specifically didn't want to be prepared for this. I wanted to see oh, if I what see. I was I doing, um, just my regular workouts, would prepare me for a triathlon and the swim and the run. Yes, bike. No. Um, yeah. But I still remember that lady yelling at me and telling me how to Wait, was this switch a, the gears. Was this an Ironman or was this an Olympic? Uh, it's called the Escape from Alcatraz Triathlon, and I'm not sure if it fits into any category. It's more, I'm not positive because oh, I'm not a triathlete, yeah. but uh, I don't yeah. know if it fits. I think it would be more of an Olympic. My, my hat is off to you, though, for, for just doing it. That's, like, that's awesome. That's well, I always like, wanted to do it since I was a little kid, since watching uh, those movies about Clint Eastwood and Alcatraz and the guys that escaped and you know all that. So I, wanted to, I always wanted to do it since I was a little kid, so that opportunity yeah. presented you itself. You know how so those it. guys are so good Time to get back training in case I get a field this fall, as I've been doing a lot more writing than I've been doing working out lately, which is why I was so fired up for this care package from First Form. I tried the protein meat sticks right away and absolutely love them. Protein meat sticks from First Form are similar to protein bars as far as benefits. First Form protein meat sticks are a delicious and very convenient way to get more protein throughout the day. Protein is essential to any health or fitness goal. No other meat stick like it on the market, packed with a full 20 grams of protein in each stick and only 200 calories or less total. It comes in five incredible flavors, original smokehouse, seasoned barbecue, Cajun style, jalapeno heat, and breakfast sausage. Great for a snack at the office, in the car, on a hike, or anywhere you're on the go. Check them out. I've also been drinking the Opti Greens 50 from first form. OptiGreens 50 is a precisely formulated greens superfood powder meant for overall immune system support and digestive health. 50 hand-chosen ingredients in precise and effective amounts with non-GMO and non-synthetic superfoods that provide a well-rounded blend of vitamins plus antioxidant-packed ingredients for overall immune health support and defense against toxins in the air and in the foods we eat to keep us as healthy as possible all year long. Go to firstform.com slash Jack Carr. That's the number one S-T-P-H-O-R-M.com slash Jack Carr to receive free shipping on any orders over $75. Once again, that's firstform.com slash Jack Carr. Remember once I had a long conversation with, you know, Lance Armstrong really wanted to be a triathlete mm. and he was a, I think he was all state swimmer in Texas mm. growing up. So he's, that. he is, you know, on the bike, one of the greatest ever as a swimmer, all state in Texas. So he's like That's one percent, he's top 1%. And you would think, oh, that guy must, would have easily been one of the greatest triathletes in the world. No, he was very, very good. Yeah. But it is it is a sign of just how insanely talented the top triathletes yeah. are that even a guy who was one of the world's greatest ever cyclists and yeah. an incredible swimmer i mean he did, he's just the, the on the running part those guys the very yeah. best of those guys are running close to world class times in the, in the marathon or the 10k especially in the 10 in the olympic trial they're running 28 minute 29 minute 10k's that's insane yeah. on top of being you know you know, these, these extraordinary swimmers. And I, I don't, I can't wrap my mind around how they do that. It's not, it's it, to me, it's the most baffling. I understand specialization. Yeah. I do not, under, do not understand 
those people who have this kind of broad array of, yeah. in some sense, contradictory uh, yeah. skills. I mean, they're training for that, you know, for that, that event, uh, that multiple events, three, um, but specifically with the, with the transitions and how fast they are and all the, the, the techniques behind just transitioning out of there. It, it, it is pretty incredible. It's, yeah. It's, it's really amazing. Yeah. But, uh, back to the kiddo. So we have a, so 18 year old just left for college, uh, 15 year old who has uh, really severe special needs and needs 24 mm-hmm. seven full-time care forever. So really my mission in life is making sure that he has that care forever, but he's a sweet little, sweet little guy. And then we have our, our 12 year old. So it's uh, it's constant chaos around here. And uh, for me, uh, being able to, to write and do a podcast and it, write scripts and do all the rest of these things, it's that prioritization side of it. So yeah. uh, luckily you already had seven books out or six by the time uh, these kids came, I, came along. Because I, should just, I should just do nothing. <laughs> it sounds like that's the best strategy. Oh. <laughs> I had a, a glimpse of a strategy this morning. So it's my job to get the two-year-old up. So I wake her up at seven and today I was like, you know what, what I'm going to do is give her a dad focused morning. Okay. So <clears throat> we did the most dad focused set of activities. Okay. The first thing we did is I, we read a car, uh, a car magazine, actually this British magazine called car. Which okay. Is great. Greatest. We read car magazine together and we looked nice. at cars. Then we looked at the, the world uh, track and field championships are going on. And she's really interested in the Jamaican, because she's part Jamaican, in the Jamaican runners. So we yeah. watched some Jamaican runners win the sprints. And then she's obsessed. You know those Theraguns, those massage guns? Oh, I've seen them. Yes. <laughs> she's obsessed with that. Really? So, and I use them every day on my, my legs. Wow. So we took out the Theragun, and I gave her a Thera yeah. massage with oh a Theragun. Gosh. And it was like... It was like I said. I, I was like, "This is my strategy. I'm going to okay. have her be into all the things I'm into. This is my way to get through the next 15 years. Let's see if it's. Let's see if it works. Yeah. See if it <laughs> sticks. See if it sticks. That's a, that's a bold strategy. And I, I, I've heard that from a, a few different people. Uh, <laughs> Who knows? Oh, yeah. I think she might be into. She she talks a lot about cars. Oh, good. And she's very car focused. Okay. And I'm hoping this 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 remains. Oh, because that's that good. That would make me very happy. Yeah, no, that that's a that's not a bad way to go. That's for sure, um, because yeah, it's just been it's been chaos. But it's sadly it's it's seeing our daughter leave the other day and pack up her car and, and head off. Um, and it she was going far away or staying not too far. Coast? She's going to be close to us, uh, but not about seven hours. So uh, far what's enough. What's the away? over under? If you're a, if you're an eighteen year old, what's the over under? You want to be far enough away mm-hmm. that mom doesn't come and right. bother you on the weekends every day. Yeah, but not so far that you can't go home. So. That's is it. the over under? What do you think it is? Like four hours? Is that the? I think maybe a little less. I think. Uh, I think it's a little less. Uh, probably three ish. I think, but close. Yeah, right in there. Right in there. It's so, right in there. Yeah. I would love to do a big survey and figure out the optimum. Yeah, you want to balance it. If you if it's a plane ride. Yeah. Every time, then it's too far. A little tougher, a little tougher, even tougher for Thanksgiving and Christmas and, and all those yeah. things. So far enough away to spread yeah. your wings and be independent, um, but not so far away where it's a huge hassle to get home and you don't come home for those kind of holidays or events or because it's a plane fly ride or something like that. Yeah. So, so I think we have, we hit, uh, we hit it just right with, uh, with the distance. And, uh, so I'm excited for her, but it's, uh, it is sad, uh, sad to see her go, but you know, that's, uh, that that's a natural. Be. I can't even, yeah. I can't even imagine that. It's like, yeah, yeah it's hard to. It's crazy. Cause I, I mean, I remember, well, obviously, uh, 
you know, that, that kindergarten class we already talked about and her going in there and holding my hand on the way in and then seeing her go off to school on her bike and me, she didn't know this for years, but uh, first we'd go together on the bikes in uh -huh. Coronado, California. And then when she started going on her own, I would go one street over and I would just shadow the whole way. And when I told her, even when she got a little older, she got upset with me that I did that because she, it was like I was ruining something when she thought she was on her own. I thought she was old enough for me to be able to say that I was, I followed but every wait, time. That's right. So this is a good parenting tip. I, I actually, I back what you did and the idea that it's really important for them to have the illusion, at least at the beginning, mm -hmm. the illusion of independence, mm -hmm. but too scary to give them. I like, so what were you, you're running one street over and you're Biking. like, between the breaks and the houses, you're looking through to make yep. sure she's okay. Exactly. Because Coronado, California is a grid and it's pretty yeah. easy to go well one block over and zip up to the next one and kind of watch her go by and then go are to the you, next one. Are you watch. on a bike or a are you bike. running? No, I'm on a, on a beach bike. cruiser. Yeah, beach cruiser. So it's uh, that's that, that's, that's that is so hilarious. Uh, but I have to wait because I, I I'd wait to see her take the turn at the end of where we the street where we lived, and then I just hop on and and make my move. Um, but uh, yeah, I did that for for years. That's so funny. <laughs> and luckily, she was at that age when I was already not when I was not taking platoons downrange. Yeah. I wasn't going to train you know training anymore. That sort of a sort of a thing. Yeah. So I so that's uh, that's. But it was sad to it was definitely sad to. to see her go as you know an adult would pay good money for that kind of, of uh, <laughs> protection, protection. <laughs> this is true this is true it uh but uh yeah i it I, I but i love doing that and i and it was i have good memories of of doing that and, and you know and my wife liked that i did it as well so that's uh you know worked, yeah. it worked out oh, yeah some points but i should have waited a couple more years till i told her maybe wait until she was out of college or something because i think you should have waited until she was 50 years old probably to be honest. yeah <laughs> i think i i jumped the gun on telling her about that i didn't expect the reaction that i that i got from that but uh <laughs> oh my goodness that's just how it goes when she um, has kids of her own she will appreciate it you should yeah. have at least waited this is by the way jack this is damning as a storyteller, you should know that it's all about when you reveal, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. You should have known that until she has school-aged children, she's not going to appreciate the genius of what you did. You yeah. blew a great story, yeah. by, but through simple impatience. Yes, yes. I over, I, I tend to overthink things, and I did not overthink this. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. I, I completely jumped the gun. I think it was spur of the moment. She mentioned the writing to school thing in Coronado, and I oh, jumped in with the, nice. yeah. It was, that's, it, that's, it, a, that's, that's another, rookie. this is yeah. the second damning admission I know. that you've made. So to far <laughs> I know. <geez. laughs> We're, I'm going to have to edit some of this out. My goodness, <laughs> a reputation. Oh my goodness. Uh, but, uh, but I do want to encourage everybody to read all these books and listen to revisionist history. Um, but as I was going through these right before this, um, as I go through books, I typically, I'll write page numbers here that I can then go mm -hmm. back and and I was curious because it was so long ago since I since I when I read these I was curious what I had highlighted and I had some pages turned down and I and uh, in blink yeah I, 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 I highlighted this and it's um, so Paul Van Ripper here and he, some of these new thinkers say if we have better intelligence we can see everything we can't lose Colonel Van Ripper said what my brother always says is Hey, say you're looking at a chessboard. Is there anything you can't see? No. But are you guaranteed to win? Not at all, because you can't see what the other guy is thinking. So when I read this in the SEAL teams, or that stood out to me. So this, yeah. is, the, this is the time of uh, ongoing war in Afghanistan, of uh, leaving Iraq to then come back, uh, dealing with insurgency, figuring out what mm -hmm. our mission is and uh, what our responsibility is in Afghanistan and Iraq as we committed and all these things. So that really 
stood out for me at the time, uh, as did the key to good decision-making, and this is you, uh, uh, good decision-making is not knowledge, it is understanding. And uh, at the time, I was thinking a lot about how we did our senior level military leaders and, and politicians uh, didn't necessarily understand the conflict in which they were about to commit U.S. forces. Uh, although we had the Russian involvement in Afghanistan from 79 to 89 to look at, we had three British incursions. We didn't have to go back to Alexander the Great or Genghis Khan. We had much more recent uh, experience to study. And for whatever reason, and I tend to think of it as an imperial hubris we neglected to take those lessons or we took the wrong lessons mm -hmm. from from those uh, experiences in Afghanistan. So that's why that's why I think that one in particular yeah. stood out to that's me. That's a really interesting one because I I think that there's a before think about how history would have been different if there had been a series of very simple exercises prior to the decisions we made about entering into those two conflicts Iraq and Afghanistan. Imagine if you just had, you book a hotel somewhere nice for a weekend. You're the president and you're the national security advisor and you're the secretary mm -hmm. of the, you know, uh, and you invite a kind of cross-section of people who know something about the culture. Some historians, some State Department people, some people on the who've been over there in the ground and one, some, some nonprofit people who worked there for 10 years, or whatever. And you just have a conversation for a couple of days. You, with no real agenda, you just want to find out what what do people feel about this place? What do mm -hmm. they know about it? What are their instincts about what we're doing? You don't have to take, you don't have to do what they think. Yeah. You just need to be exposed to the full realm of possibilities. Yeah. Right. Just so you know in the back of your mind that oh, there's this 84 year old historian at you know Penn State who spent yeah. in the 1960s spent 10 years in Afghanistan, and you know. This is what he th and has been back 10 times ever since. And this is what he thinks. Yeah. Like, oh, that's interesting. Or this is a 23 year old who did her Peace Corps work on the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And she, this is what she says. That's just that kind of stuff. Yeah. I feel like it's a very, very simple step that we jump over. Um, yeah. It doesn't solve the problem, but it just helps you, I think, be smart about what the pitfalls are in any, sure. in any approach you're going to take. Oh, sure. It can put uh, decisions or upcoming possible decisions into a, a greater context or, mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's what you owe the people at that level. That's what you owe the people in the chain of command who you're about to commit to these areas um, yeah. is putting this thought into it. Um, and I think we, we didn't do, we neglected to do that for, for whatever reason. Um, and also this one st stood out to me and it, it has something to do with, uh, with thinking uh when making a decision, and this is Freud, you're quoting Freud here. When making a decision of minor importance, I have always found it advantageous to consider all the pros and cons. In vital matters, however, such as the choice of a mate or a profession, the decision should come from the unconscious, from somewhere within ourselves. In the important decisions of personal life, we should be governed, I think, by the deep inner needs of our nature. And, uh, and I like this because I also thought of the podcast you did when you talked about your and went back and interviewed your uh, assistants and your first assistant. And oh, yeah. that one was fantastic <laughs> because I'm in the middle of hiring a, a chief of staff because there's just so much going on and I can't possibly yeah. you know, do some of these uh, these things. Um, so I need to write. And so in listening to that podcast and it's so fantastic because your first assistant um, and you don't Rick has that memory thing to it as well, because you're asking what 
her experience was with you. And I think she said she had it scheduled for like an hour, half hour or something. You sat down for 10 or 15 minutes at a coffee shop and you asked her, what did I ask you? And you said, we, they talked about something that had nothing to do with being an assistant. And you said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to interview a bunch of people and, and I'll get back to you. And you, you left and you ran off to do something and then call her 10 minutes later or something like that. And say so you've got the job and turn over your credit cards and the passwords and all the rest of it to this person that you barely know. And uh, I thought that was fascinating and also made me a lot less anxious about hiring yeah. someone. Well, you know, that that's actually, I've thought more about that. And I realized the reason I think this way is that, and it, it has a lot to do with my, um, the years I spent in competitive running mm. when I was a kid. And I realized in running that there are two separate things. One is talent and one is motivation. Yeah. And in the very best people, they overlap. But in most of us, we have a, a bit of both or more of one and less of the other. And we think a lot about talent and way too little about motivation. Yeah. And motivation is really what gets you, you know, 70% of the way. Even the most talented person in the world, if they're not willing to get up every morning and train, they can't, you, you, they're not going to be an effective runner. Like, yeah. Uh, but on the contrary, someone with a little less talent who is very motivated can be very effective, can have a wonderful running career. Yeah. And I just realized I'm just not going to make that mistake. I'm not going to get hung up on searching for the most brilliant person or the yeah. most qualified person. Or what I really want is someone who is motivated, wants to work, wants to show up, enjoys himself, you know, like is flexible, is resilient. That's all I really. And I, yeah, I got a vibe. You can get, I think you can get a vibe about motivation pretty quickly. Yeah. That's really what, you know, someone shows up on time, they're, they're presentable, they're enjoying <laughs> themselves. They're not yeah. like, you know, they're laughing and talking during the interview. They show signs of life. I'm like, all right, that's all I need, <laughs> right? It's not the hardest thing in the world. I, just need, I need the right attitude. Yeah. Right? That, yeah. Oh, attitude. Sometimes that's the only thing we could control. And uh, I talked to my kids about that. Talked to my guys in the SEAL teams about that uh, as well. Wove that into training. Um, but uh, but I, that made me hearing you say this right now makes me feel even better about the person that I've, I've interviewed on just on a video teleconference now. And then she's coming up here on, on Monday and, mm. and uh, have an in-person interview. But makes me feel even better about this uh, this uh, potential choice slash candidate, um, and uh, I, I think it's gonna, yeah, I'm getting, that, I'm getting that yeah. same type of a type of a feeling because it's uh, it's well past the time that uh, that I need someone to help manage all the other stuff so that I can that I can yeah. write. Um, and I do want to talk a little bit also just because I want people to read these books and I want people to listen to the podcast, uh, particularly the season coming up right now, uh, which is season nine. How does that feel to be season nine? Of revisionist. Season eight. This this six episodes are part of the oh. of season of season eight. They're not a. It's a. Ah. It's a. We, we're positioning it as it. the real season. The rest was just kind of prologue. Oh, okay, um, I listened to season eight already. I thought. Yeah. No. 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 It was way more. The, the the this this is the. That's hence the, the confusion. Yes. yes this is the confusion. That got. It. And these ones drop on August thirty first. I think. Is that's that, right. Is they that, drop okay. Next August thirty first, and it's this six part yeah. series, um, and then a little fun one at the end, a seventh one at the end. Okay. Which, um, uh, but yeah, this I think it's his. Um, you know, we we deliberately tackled this controversial issue yeah. of guns and their place in society, and I was just my my the thing that motivated it was I just don't think we have a very honest and thoughtful conversation about guns. I think that like there's a ton of things like there's one idea that I'm totally fascinated by, which is, which I'd never, 
I've thought about before, but it never explored in any kind of detail, which is that the number of the homicide rate in a society is a function of two things, the level of lethal violence and how good we are at saving the lives of people who are the victims of potentially lethal violence. Right. So when you observe the homicide rate going down, as it has over the last 30 years, quite dramatically, is that because there's less lethal violence on the streets or is it because when someone gets to the hospital, we do a better job of saving their life? <laughs> and the answer is not all of it, but a lot of it is that ER docs are just better. And so someone who would have been a murder victim 25 years ago yeah. survives today. And this is all stuff we learned. You know this. We learned this. This is what we. This was the only silver lining of Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. Is we learned how to save people's lives. Yeah. I mean the, the 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 survival rates from what would once have been fatal injuries, mm. battlefield injuries, were insane in yeah. in those two conflicts. That's now come home. Yeah. And now, so now we say if we look at a city like New York City, where the murder rates are by historical terms right now really really low. And we say, oh, wow, we've solved the problem of violence. Well, actually, no, we've we built some really amazing trauma centers, filled them with really skilled people. Yeah. And you're, if you can get to the hospital in time, they'll probably save your life unless it's a headshot. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and that's like that was really interesting because I was like, oh, so we're having this kind of fake conversation where we're where the meta where, you know, the credit really goes to doctors, not to politicians who pass laws or other people, you know, it's we're, and we're fooling ourselves into thinking we've solved a problem that is actually in some ways as bad as ever. Yeah. But that was a really like, it's that kind of stuff that I wanted to explore. And I think it's really worth um, talking about because it clarifies things. Well, I was looking forward to, so I listened to those all, uh, I haven't listened to that seventh uh, bonus episode yet, um, but uh, listened to them, them all. And for this audience in particular, um, as I listen, I listen to them all in a row, and I think for the I wouldn't usually say this, but listening to episode six with Abdullah Pratt, um, oh, yeah. I I mean, and the music at the end, by the way, was was incredible. But um, listening to that episode with him and his story and what he's doing is, I almost want to recommend that that this audience um, listen to that one first, uh, and oh, then go back and listen to, I wouldn't recommend it to everyone, but to, to yeah. people that, um, majority probably of my, of my audience here. Um, I, if they haven't listened, if they haven't read all your books and listened to your podcast and aren't, uh, aren't, you know, don't know you and aren't a fan and aren't invested in what you're doing next. Um, then I think I would recommend to them to listen to that Abdullah Pratt episode. So they're all powerful, but that one in particular, I think then allows you to go back and start from the beginning with an appreciation of your thoughtful nature uh, that you mm -hmm. might not have if you just jump in to uh, the litigation and the, and the Supreme Court and then gun smoke and then this going to the range and then the interview with the gun control person and, and all that. Um, but uh, but if they have listened to all your all the revisionist history episodes and they are a fan and they've read the books and they, they know you, then I'd say start from the beginning. But I think that Abdullah Pratt one is, I mean, it's just incredible uh, and what he's doing. And I love the, I, I think we need to wrap up here because I think you have somewhere else to go. But uh, something that you thought a lot about with that one, um, sin is the failure to bother to care. And I wanted to yeah. make sure that I asked you about that before we, before we left. That was something that was said to me by a Jesuit priest in Rome mm -hmm. like eight years ago. <clears throat> I was doing a series of podcasts about 
the way the Jesuits think about problems, I think is really an interesting. And I went to see this guy named Father Keenan in this, you know, thousand year old monastery in Rome. <clears throat> and that was something that he said that I've never forgotten, which was, you know, he was talking about the story of the Good Samaritan. And, you know, the Pharisees see this man by the side of the road and they go, they cross to the other side and hustle on by and don't look. Um, and they're not evil. They're not, they would never have beaten up that man. They would never commit an act of violence or do anything, but they just can't be bothered. Mm -hmm. And he said like so much of what um, passes for sin in our society is that it's just like a failure to engage your moral sense when it's called for. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I, you know, I've, I've thought about that line over and over and over and over and over again ever since. And I, I thought it, um, that episode you're talking about of with this guy, um, uh, Abdullah, uh, Abdullah Pratt, um, he's an ER doc at the University of Chicago who grew up on the South side mm -hmm. and the people, some of the people coming into his ER are people that he grew up with. And it's all about his response to that insane mm -hmm. position to be in and he, how he kind of grapples with that. What does it mean to care mm -hmm. um, when you're, um, and uh, yeah, anyway, that was a, that you, you're, it is the most powerful of the six. And I, I see the, I see your argument about if you're unfamiliar, maybe that's the best place to start. Yeah. Yeah. But I want people to listen to revisionist history, all of them. Uh, I went back and listened to Saigon 1965 for another project that I'm working on. Um, oh, and uh, so I, so I got to go back and, and listen to that. Of course I get distracted by other episodes as well to re-listen to. when I, when I went back a few weeks ago to listen to Saigon uh, 1965, um, which has some implications to obviously what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan. And anyway, oh, yeah. it's just, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, all fascinating. So I had all these things. So we, we didn't even get to do my first page. By the way, I think when I, when I talked about over overthinking things, I have, well, this is I don't know how many pages this Jack, is. Jack, just have me, just have me back. Let's do it again. <laughs> this is so much fun. It was so <laughs> much fun. It was such an honor. Yeah, I have all this, all this here, um, and yeah, well, let's let's do it again. I'd love that. Uh, thank you so much for taking this time today, and can't recommend your your books and and podcast enough. And uh, before we go, now now you have two daughters, but. Uh, next book are there a few different footnotes from other uh things that you've There's done two, that you're thinking <clears throat> two of things on the way exploring? one is i'm doing a revision of the tipping point because this is mm -hmm. 25th anniversary mm -hmm. and i'm writing a kind of sequel wow um and yeah. then i'm doing this another book about i'm halfway through it but i had to put it aside to do the tipping point thing about um what it means to be black what it meant to be black in los angeles in the 30s and 40s okay um it's a story of Tom Bradley, the first black mayor of L.A. You've talked about him and on the podcast. Really, a remarkable guy, um, yeah. and in uh, his world, mm -hmm. and I'm re I'm interested in the question of uh, if you're angry, what are the various strategies available to you to make use of your anger? That's really what the book's about. Okay, um, and I I'm hopeful that it um, I'm like I say I'm halfway through, but um, that'll be it'll be. The new tipping point first, and then it'll be that book. Those are my two big oh, projects. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, thank you for doing this. We'll hit Bomber Mafia, all these other things uh, the next time that we that we talk. But uh, yeah, uh, one last thing here before you go. Uh, well, two last things real quick. Did you rethink your headstone? Um, you, you mentioned oh. before. <laughs> one big idea is that there was one big idea to explain everything. Have you put more thought into into that one? I think I think there might be something else. Uh, uh, to 
Well, well, there was one time where I thought, I've, I, over the years, I've had, there was one time when I wanted my headstone to be um, uh, to, to those who looked at the world and said, no way, he had the courage to say, way. <laughs> that was one idea for headstone. <laughs> I haven't thought of one recently. <laughs> I haven't thought of one recently, but uh, no, I think people are not clever enough on their headstones. You've got to like... <laughs> You can get a laugh out of what your headstone says. I think you're ahead of the game. That's got to be a, no, I'll let you know if I update that one. Sounds good. Well, I'll ask you again next time. Uh, thank you so much again for, for this. It uh, really did mean, mean the world to me. Such an honor. And uh, take care and please reach out if you ever need anything. Thanks, Jack. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. Going to start over here today. Uh, Eric Wind watch connoisseur, vintage watch expert. Follow him on Instagram at Eric M. Wind and go to his website, windvintage.com, windvintage.com. Also check him out on YouTube, some amazing lectures on vintage watches there. And he was kind enough to send me this Blazer Seiko that he co-designed and sincerely appreciate the gift, um, the gift of a watch. If you followed me for a while or read my novels, you know how much that means to me. So Eric, thank you so much. That is uh, sincerely appreciated. And moving over here, right here, Lucas O'Hara, Grizzly Forge. That is at grizzly underscore forge on Instagram or the grizzlyforge.com right here. Check out what he has going on. He recently moved. He was on the podcast not too long ago, but check out these blades right here and be sure and follow him on Instagram to find out when the next knife drop is. And look at that Damascus one right there. Oh, so nice. So awesome. So Lucas, man, thank you for these and everybody else. Be sure and follow him on Instagram and go to the grizzlyforge.com. Hit that website up as well. All right. Wood cabin candle company. And that is wood cabin candle company. Dot com right here. Really cool group of people over there. You can see that or not, but they make some really cool candles. And uh, yeah, I've been lighting these things for the past few years, especially around the holidays. These are just awesome. So check them out. Woodcabincandlecompany.com. And this right here, this is a really cool gift. Really looking forward to reading this. It's called Daddy's Diary, the War Journal of a B-17 Pilot. Lieutenant Edwin Snake Walkup. And uh, this is by Helen Walkup Carnes right here, and this is this is the diary that uh, that she had had published from World War II. Uh, enclosed, you will find a copy of my father's diary from World War II. Right there, he flew a B-17, dropping bombs on Germany. He was an old guy then, 27. Most of the boys were 19 to 20. And uh, yeah, looking forward to this. Those types of, of journals. Uh, I wonder how many journals are just locked away in attics and boxes. From, from World War II, but this goes takes you day by day right here. So there is the cover. Be sure and check that out. And thank you so much uh, for this gift. Sincerely appreciate that. And what? Oh, Toyotas of War. Check them out on Instagram. On this past podcast, I was talking about Land Cruisers, my uh, FJ62 and 80 and 40, but check that out. Toyotas of War. Great content over there on Instagram. All right. That does it for today. Take care out there. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about Malcolm Gladwell, follow him on Instagram at Malcolm Gladwell and be sure to visit his website, gladwellbooks.com.
jackcarusa.com. You can follow me on the social channels at jackcarusa. Officialjackcar.com is the website. Click on shop in the upper right-hand corner for the merch. And if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care out there, stay safe, be strong, keep fighting.